Hi, I'm Cheryl and Fenn. Hello, this is Christabel. Hello, this is Michael Horse. Do you enjoy listening to Twin Peaks Unwrapped, the podcast? Have you picked up our book yet? Twin Peaks Unwrapped, the book. That has over 100 cast and crew who have contributed to this book. And it's, I think people really love it. I mean, we also have community commentary where a lot of the community have participated in this. It's just a great book. We recommend you pick it up at bluerosemag.com. Thank you for your interest and for your enthusiasm and, and keeping Twin Peaks alive. Bite the bullet, baby. You're under arrest for the attempted murder of Ronette Pulaski and the murder of Laura Palmer. You want a lot for your money, and I want a lot for my time. Hospital. I'm pregnant. Close your eyes. This is such stuff as dreams are made of. Welcome to Twin Peaks Unwrapped. I'm your host, Ben Durant, and beside me is... Brian Kazaska. And Ben, today we have another Community Rewatch. Yeah, episode seven. This is the last episode of season one. Oh, man. And we've got a great panel, and we've got Lindsay... Hello, this is Lindsay. <laughs> you guys are the Bix now, right? The yeah, yeah, yeah. Aiden and I were bickering peaks before, and we switched from Twin Peaks to Shakespeare of all things. So we decided to shorten our name a bit just to cover the the cover all of our bases, I guess. The new and improved. So, I like it. Me too. Nice. Thanks. <laughs> we got Aiden here. Hello, this is Aiden. The other half of Bickering Peaks. And Joel. Hello, this is Joel from Lost in the Movies. And Joel, it was you who had this idea that when we get to, get to episode seven, that we, that you should be on the show and that you wanted to have the Bix on the show with you. Why is that? Well, I wanted to be on it because I'm always fascinated to talk about Mark Frost's uh, contributions to Twin Peaks. And I think there's been people in the Twin Peaks community who have kind of focused on that or brought it out in different ways. I know Andreas has, uh, Hauskov has done a lot of work with that. And um, uh, David Bushman, I think, has a book coming out mm. of Mark Frost interviews. But uh, Bickering Peaks, I believe, was it two years ago now that you guys started doing the Lynch Frost? Like Pretty the, close, yeah. Okay. They did a whole series. I mean, I should probably let them explain it, but... <laughs> They did a series where they went chronologically through both Lynch's and Frost's uh, film TV canon. And so they reviewed every Frost uh, scripted show or film, mm. uh, I think 2004 or five. And so I thought that was fascinating. I finally did a whole Frost um, thing myself this year, which I'm still working on the books. I just want, I, I thought it would be really interesting to hear perspectives of people coming at this from not just a Twin Peaks uh, admiration and fandom, but actually kind of like a knowledge of Frost's work, Frost's larger work, and see how it fits in that context as well. Yeah. Sorry, that was a long answer. but And yeah, this episode is written by himself and directed by Mark Frost. That's very cool. Real quick, I, I think it's interesting that, like, this is the only episode that he directed. Like, it's funny he doesn't come back in season two and, and direct another one. But looking at our book and I'm going through newspaper articles and I'm seeing that, like, 
after the season one, Mark Frost is really starting to focus over the summer on his movie, Storyville. So mm. he, I think he moves right from directing one TV episode I mean, to basically saying, I'm going to do my own feature film. So I think it's, I, mean, I think that might be the reason why he might not have directed anymore, because he was now thinking about features. I just want to say the trajectory and chronology of Storyville is so confusing to it me. Is. And I, I kind of um, hope Bushman's book clears this up. He supposedly started working on this movie in 1990 during mm-hmm. like season two and was even gone at some point. Right. Shoot, I believe at the end, I think he was doing pre-production in mid season two. And then I think in reflections, he says by Miss Twin Peaks episode, I was out of there. I was just focusing on, on shooting the movie, but it didn't wow. come out until the week that Firewalk with me came out. They were released at the same exact time in August, 1992. Right. So the studio sat on that movie for like a year. It seems yeah. Like. And then dumped it the same week that his business partner was. It's just so strange. It's so strange. And almost no money, like four hundred thousand bucks. It was released in nineteen theaters, as far as I can tell. That's strange. Wow. Uh, during the summer of nineteen ninety, he must be doing really early pre-production because that fall, besides Twin Peaks season two, you also had what is it? Chronicles? Is it just called yeah. American, American Chronicles? Chronicles. American Chronicles, and one of them is at uh, Mardi Gras. Yeah. And so Mardi Gras is in the same place where Storyville took place. So he actually was part of American mm. Chronicles working on that episode. And at the same time, he's kind of looking for locations for where he wants to do his movie mm. and stuff like that. So if he hadn't, I don't even know if he had written anything at that time. He could have been writing during season two, but he at least is starting to scope. And from newspapers, I'm learning. Yeah. I know we're way, way off course, but I think it's interesting <laughs> because we're talking about Mark Frost and we don't get to talk yeah. about him enough. No. And, uh, we had a whole month dedicated to Mark Frost. We used to Frost. have uh, uh, Frostober. Frost-tober. <laughs> well, we're, recording, we're recording in Frostober. At That's least. true. We yeah. are recording in Frostober. Yeah, but it won't happen until November, so we should do November. It, won't work it doesn't day. work, it doesn't yeah. Work. So what do we think about this episode? I mean, we kind of start off in uh, uh, Jacoby's uh, home, or is it his office? But they found, there's Donna and James are trying to find the missing tape, I believe. Yes. They have the coconut, they find the coconuts, and you find out that uh, Jacoby's a little bit, kind of a pervy kind of dude. He's kind of out there. you always knew that, didn't you? I know, but now you really know it. I mean, (laughs) you knew he was a little... You could see why he lost his license or whatever yeah. happened to him. <laughs> and then we go into the park, and that's where I, I never understand how. Why is Maddie even still wearing that wig? She's at the park, and they video recorded everything, and she's still like Sa- still in character. Yeah, still in why character. did they leave her there? Yes, right. Why didn't she come along? When we were watching it too, we were wondering about that same thing. And I forget; it's been so long since I watched the episode previous to this. But does Jacoby go there? expecting to see her did she tell him to meet her there or was it just him on a hunch going there so here it is they told him they she was video recorded with a newspaper and she said go somewhere else i don't know if it was spark 21 no no No? she said some i don't know if it's spark 21 or something but but he sees the newspaper and she he sees that she's at easter park with the gazebo (sighs) right you could have done it earlier like the whole thing doesn't really make sense yeah you could have done it hours ago and not be that location but he sees the gazebo and decides that's where I'm going to go and see if she's there. Ignore where she said I was and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It, it's convoluted, but... <laughs> gets him there. It gets him to have a heart attack. 
No, we can probably blame Harley Payton a little more for that because most of that takes place in episode six. Oh, uh, <laughs> set up. Whenever there's something wrong, blame Harley. Harley. <laughs> you know, I love episode six is my favorite non-Lynch episode of the series. Oh. But I think he got himself in a little bit of a plotting snafu there. Mm. And so J- Jacoby goes to Easter Park, sees who he thinks is Laura Palmer, and has a heart attack. Yes, brought on by a masked assailant who – does anybody have a firm theory on, on who that was? Who's the guy that whacks him on the head? Yeah. I always thought it was Leland. Now yeah. with the gloves because of the whole black glove It is thing. without a doubt Leland. Yeah. Okay. And Well, here's why it is Leland because in season two, well, he's interviewed by Cooper twice. Once I think in the – I don't know. Once in, in episode eight, and then again he's interviewed, and this time hypnosis. He's and hypnotized. Went, hypnotized, yeah. and at the time he's saying he smells engine oil when he's at. He says, "I smell engine oil at Easter Park," and then Cooper says, "That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about and tries to steer him in another direction." Mm. But if he never got that. Yeah, so the engine oil is, of course, Leland, gotcha. Bob, and gotcha. That makes yeah. sense. I've always just, assumed, you know, after seeing it a couple of times, I was like, that's got to be Leland, the black gloves, and he was a mysterious guy doing things. But why would Leland know? We know we know that's Leland with what you just told us, Ben. Also, and when, when he was uh, 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 suffocating Jacques, he was wearing the gloves. The gloves. Right. But yeah. my question is, how would Leland know that this was going to happen? Or was I, it just happen chance that he, we know this too. he stumbled? What? We, we do know this. In episode six, mm-hmm. he is on the couch in the dark, and he sees Maddie leave the house. And so we just see him sit in the dark again. But so he's he, following them. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. that. And I was just going to say, it, it does seem like a Mark Frost kind of thing to do. Like, like, I love this episode so much, and it is so Frostian. I don't know if that's a word we're going to use, but yeah. that's what like I'm going it. with, Frostian. For him to have all of these amazing plot threads that he kind of just drops in there, and eventually they get weaved into the story. Like I don't, I don't know. Did they know at this point that Leland was the killer, that he was going to be Bob? Because it kind of fits in really well later on. But at this point, it's like Mark Frost just has this gem of an idea and plots it in there, and it's great. And it's and that is so typical Frost when you look at the rest of his work that mm. he's done, like all of the other. TV cop procedural dramas that he did and all the mysteries that he did with Storyville and, and else, elsewhere. It's just a really cool little Frostian twist. That's what I took away from it when I we like, watched it the other day. Yeah. So, all right. I question where whether Lynch and Frost knew at this point who the killer was. Yeah. You know, Ray Wise, oh, I saw him. I actually the saw Q&A. him in, in the Q&A at, in Columbus a few months ago. But he was talking about like, oh, he tried grief in different ways. Mm-hmm. And they keep on, kept on giving him bigger parts and kept on letting him do more things. And I, I bet mm-hmm. you they saw something in Ray Wise. And then mm-hmm. that scene in episode six where I he's know. on the couch is so yeah. disturbing because it's like, it's menacing. You see him in the dark and then he looks and you see him in the light and he goes back. And to me, that is the scene that tells you this guy could be the killer and i feel like and it's also interesting that would make like they're trying to lead us in different directions with different characters like leo and uh you know ben horn and jock and jock but it's so interesting that they even gave leland this sliver of a hint that he could possibly be the killer in that one moment because when we did the rewatch it was like wow this is like a nail this is hitting you in the head going Holy smokes, we know something's yeah. up with him. But you would never in a million years 
think the writers would take the father figure and make you think he could be the He's grieving. He's grieving, right. So it is, you you do question it now. You do go, did they know secretly behind closed doors? Nobody else knew, just them, that Leland could possibly be who they wanted to be. I guess they had to have known by the summer when Jennifer Lynch wrote the diary. But at that point, Mm -hmm. ABC probably was saying, you need to wrap this up. And at that time, they were saying, okay, let's start plotting out season two. And Mm. and they probably figured it out. But it's interesting. It's something to think about. Um, I think the the only, and it doesn't really pin it down, but the only time that we even get an inclination is in the USC talks in like 2012 or 2013, Frost said, as they did not know in the pilot, but they knew shortly after. Hmm. And that's all we said. So right. We don't know if that means they knew, like, after writing the script. I doubt it. I think that he means they shot, cut, finished the pilot, and then they decided when they were writing season one or, like, as they were getting ready to write season one is my guess. Hmm. I like the idea that they decided – when Ray Wise cut his hand on the glass because that was an accident. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But if that's true, that was an accident on the set, and that episode was shot at the end of the season out of order because mm. of Lynch was off Wild at Heart. So that would mean that they didn't know when they shot, like, episode three and episode six and all that, which would be kind of strange because there's so many <laughs> clues there, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're right. So uh, episode two with Leland getting cut was in between six and this episode seven that that, that wow. Lynch was because they were all sharing the 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 one eye Jack set too, like gotcha. Lynch and Frost right. and Caleb Dachanel yep. were all sharing that set together and stuff. So you're right. But there's a lot of interesting things happening with Leland during that. Like I said, there's things mm. happening during these three episodes that yeah. make you wonder. But. Mm-hmm. So I love this shot when, uh, you know, Jacoby is having his heart attack and you look into his eye and it turns into the wheel of uh, One-Eyed Jack's casino. And it's a a cool shot. Mark Frost did a great job directing. It's action-packed. It's very stylish. It's very, it's fast-paced. Yeah, very fast-paced. And the interesting thing is that, you know, all these, a lot of these other scripts, they were like, when we've done these unseen Twin Peaks uh, scenes, we, sometimes we've had 10 at some points and stuff. We, we really don't have that much. He, there's not really filler. Like, he he knows what he's going to direct and he knows. So it's it's a really tight script as right. well. I have a question for, for everybody, um, I guess, particularly for Lindsay and Aiden, but for you guys, too. I think Frost didn't direct that much in his career. He did Hill Street Blues and this and American Chronicles and Storyville, and that's it. Mm. He's done so much other work. He wrote a bunch of stuff, both for screen and on the page. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, well, really, that's, you know, he wrote a lot of stuff. And even, you know, the Twin Peaks books later on. So it can be sort of hard to tease out a style, like a visual style, but in mm. terms of like his values and his story interests what do you see in this episode that ties into some of his non-twin peaks work or even maybe the secret history and final dossier one thing that came up for me um there seems to be related to the twin peaks uh especially the secret history of twin peaks and um the final dossier there's a lot of emphasis on kind of the backstories of some of these characters especially with Mm -hmm. Catherine and pete there Mm -hmm. was this this nice little teasing out like the history of their romance. And that was something that this is the first time I've seen this episode since 
um, finishing up the return. So I'd forgotten about that scene when they're in the mill and they're talking about when they met. And that mm. felt to me very much like yeah. like his interest is in going back and, and figuring out where these characters came mm. from. It's nothing that's really referred to again in any great depth. And it's a kind of an emotional moment for the two of them. And then you have Pete rem- reminiscing with his yearbook a little bit later on. That felt very very much like the kinds of things that we get in the secret history and the final dossier. So that to me feels a little bit more like a Mark Frost style. Yeah. And it's also interesting because it does tie back into the plot itself of Pete rushing into the fire to save Catherine. The love of his life. The love has been rekindled by gasoline and Leah Johnson. (laughs) So like the, uh, so, and that, that's another typical Mark Frost thing is there's, as you mentioned, there's, there's no fat. There's really like every scene has a purpose. It is directly going to tie into a further scene down the road. Um, And that, that's, that's something that he really honed on Hill Street Blues. Um, and I yeah. think it comes across as a director here. I think in Storyfield is kind of an interesting thing because there was more room for that kind of fat. And so it did develop a little bit mm-hmm. more. But in, in television, he's really, really great at just honing in on, okay, here, I've got 42 minutes. Here's everything that's going to happen. Yeah. And it is all going to tie together fairly well. And it's fairly economical. That was another mm-hmm. thing about this episode. Even though there are all these, yeah, these so storylines going yeah. on, you kind of it just goes so fast because he's, he, he plots it very well. And I think that's a result of, of working on, you know, the $6 million man and, and Hill street blues and, and stuff like that, seeing how TV is produced. So that, I think that would be what I would say, what we yeah, would say yeah. is kind of the frost style. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. We have a uh, Cooper uh, at the casino and there's Jacques and he bring, takes out his $1,000. I mean, I like that these things are all kind of <laughs> tying together. The, the chip there. Yes, the, the chip. Da- yeah. The chipped chip. The chip. <laughs> and bite the big one. Yeah, bite the <laughs> bite the bullet, baby. Yes. We've got two unseen Twin Peaks. One of them is around this time. And it's not that different from what is shown. It has Sherilyn mm-hmm. Fenn talking with Blackie. Hi, I'm Shafer the Dark Lord. And we are... The Pink Room Burlesque. Unseen Scene 1. Interior. One-Eyed Jack's Office. Night. Close on a TV monitor. Featuring an overhead angle looking down on Cooper and Jacques as Jacques speaks to his pit boss. Blackie O'Reilly sits in the office watching. Not at the monitor, but the curtains across from her. Come in, dear. The curtains part and Audrey Horn enters. Tricked out in some elaborately strapped and corseted brothel wear. Blackie appraises her with a cold commercial eye. Turn around. As Audrey turns, her eye is drawn to the monitor. She thinks she sees Dale Cooper and it sends a jolt up her brainstem. While her back is turned, Cooper and Jacques walk away from the table and off the screen. Very nice. Audrey turns back, eyes drawn anxiously again to the monitor, now empty. Is something wrong? No, this outfit's a little chilly. You'll get used to it. This is a good night for you to break in. The owner's coming by. He likes to spend some time with all the new girls. Who's that? No names, child. You don't offer and you don't ask. Not with anyone. Yes, ma'am. You go to your room now. Wait until you hear the bell. When the bell rings, you go to the get acquainted room. Kinda like high school. Very much like high school. 
in that you go where I tell you and you do as you're told or you'll be disciplined. Audrey turns away. Blackie speaks a bit softer. What are we going to call you? My real name's Marilyn. But we don't want to use your real name, do we? Oh. No, I see. Come here. Yes, ma'am. Kneel down beside me. Audrey kneels. Blackie holds up a deck of cards. Pick a card. Audrey picks the Queen of Diamonds. Yeah, the the one that that stuck out to me is the line about it being kind of like high school and then the reference to discipline and everything. So there were two things that kind of stuck out to me in that regard is that we kind of forget that Audrey is a high schooler. Like mm. we forget that all these kids are high school students really <laughs> yeah, until we right. get the, the Nadine plot line a little bit later in season two. But it's kind of a little throwback to the fact that she is a high school student, which has been kind of forgotten. And then there's this weird sexual tension between Audrey and yeah. Blackie that, yeah. that is really much more present in this, yeah, the, the, the cut scene than it, shows up in the in the actual episode even though it's still present in the episode and i guess if i had a question for you guys i was like what were you what do you make of that the kneeling down beside me thing yeah uh, you know i always think like it's the writing obviously we, we know it's writing of the time but sometimes i feel like when you have these characters the writers don't know how to write for high schoolers so they write yeah. them as adults maybe you know you yeah. almost like there's no one on that writing staff it's coming from a female, young perspective. It's coming from older white guys. Yeah. So they're mm-hmm. writing a fantasy for older white guys. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I kind of look at it like they don't know how to write a high school. Or And you're right, Nadine reminds us because it, it, even that, she's dating a high schooler. Nadine mm-hmm. dates a high school student. And then it <laughs> reminds you, oh, my God. Nadine went back to high school. It is not, and it's even weirder. Um, but yeah, you're right. There is that weird chemistry between these two in the scene, and maybe it was just because Cheryl and Fenn, they loved her. They love, you know, she really like she popped on the screen. Mm-hmm. She she was like a sex symbol uh, mm-hmm. for that time. So maybe anytime you had her flirting with anybody. <laughs> or any any or any having that weird we do men we do women we yeah do like just having her play like she played well with others on the screen I think she had chemistry yeah. with everybody so I think maybe I think it's just because of the perspective of the writers they yeah. didn't that's yeah. how they just knew what to do and on the show yeah. uh, Blackie does put her hand on Audrey like when when she's picking out a card and I don't know if it's in this one or where what scene it is maybe it's in a whole different episode. Uh, Audrey says you're not my type or something mm. like that, and like so it, maybe it's, every, it's you're, you're, here you're everyone's type, type. or something. Right, like it's that. insinuating yeah. that Blackie could be a lesbian or bisexual, yeah. but also that she's in a whole new world. There isn't; it's not just black and white anymore. Like it's yeah. ev- everyone's yeah. up for anything. Maybe yeah. that's yeah. what it's insinuating. But in the script, that whole kneel down beside me thing did kind of throw me. It's like right, ah. yeah, it's yeah. good. It was cut, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, it comes across anyways in the in the scene in the, the in the actual scene because the way she kind of touches her hand at the end and everything, you still you get that idea pretty powerfully, I think. And then right. of course the later episode it becomes more explicit. Yeah. But it is interesting that she's I think the only maybe the only queer character in all of 
Twin Peaks on screen. I mean, Laura is in the diary. Mm-hmm. But you don't really hear about it that much or at all in the show. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit in the film you get it. But and, and yeah. Josie, Josie in the in the in the diary too seems like she's hitting yeah. on Laura. Yeah. It doesn't appear at all in the show. But. No. No. Yeah. It's it's only in the diary that those themes really come out more. And then I think Denise later on they kind of suggest that maybe she's bi, but. She is a lesbian transgender, I think. No, but she also kind of hits on Truman at one point, but that might just be to kind of set him off, to make him uncomfortable, because he's already looking kind of awkward, you know? Mm. Yeah, but with a transgender, it's not about their sexuality. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, i just re-looking at this, but it's interesting. Transgender does not define their sexual orientation. Oh, no, not at all. Yeah, but it's interesting. So you can be... Lesbian, gay, can, yeah, or you can be. I, I, I consider myself to be a woman, and I am attracted to another woman. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. But it's, it's, it doesn't yeah. have any implications for for attraction. Yeah. Just briefly, we already mentioned Mar- that in the script she called herself Marilyn, but that is, you know, I definitely jumped to Marilyn Monroe, no. and that was something that uh, Frost and Lynch were working on a script is goddess and stuff like that. Right. That, so I mean, every once in a while you have these little hints of Marilyn, and then. There was another one. Was it episode one? Probably uh, Cooper saying about JFK and and all yeah. that. So I feel like this is Frost throwing his love of Marilyn Monroe and, and all comes that. full circle yeah. a little bit. Yeah. We have uh, Shelley washing her hair, and I remember where did I read this that it that actually the actress uh, Machen Amick actually had dyed her hair. Yes. And they had to pretend she was dying it or something. Yeah, or something like that. The funny thing is. When I read this or I heard this, I can't remember where this came from. I don't even think I noticed her hair <laughs> change, yeah. change colors. And that that's how it shows you how uh, observant I am. But I think that's why they had the scene was because her hair color changed. But I, know, I, didn't so I, didn't, I didn't either. Yeah, so. But now we will. We'll, 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 yeah, obviously, yeah, no, it's we'll the only thing we're going to see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Her hair has changed. <laughs> so Jacques is now uh, crossing the border and there's a sting operation with the police to arrest him. And do we have anything to say about this scene? Go Andy? Yeah. Yes. Go Andy. Go Andy. Yeah. I wanted more action scenes like this. I mean, this right. was like a big action scene. I thought Frost, the pacing was well done. Yes. For I mean, it. This is the Hill Street Blues scene. It and is. not yes. just the fact that they arrest somebody with the sirens going, but actually even more so the conversation they have in the car about Lucy and kind of, you know, ah, you know, women, what are you going to do? Like, just the, like, the sort mm-hmm. of... Um, small talk that they make in the cruiser to me is like very very hill street blues right the fish talk the the angling (laughs) metaphor that they weave into this fish is on the hook and then they just (laughs) the bait's coming and all this stuff just keeps adding on to it right yeah oh yeah yep i mean it would have been great if another like a parallel universe where mark frost was like i will do all the action scenes i will just direct (laughs) the action stuff i think it would have done very well yeah Yeah. Uh, and i I were sorry i remember uh you guys this episode on storyville action sequences yes fight scenes maybe not so much (laughs) (laughs) why how bad was his fight scenes it's pretty goofy Yeah, it was pretty goofy. There's into an Aikido studio or what? They're probably massacring that, but some sort of martial arts studio. And he gets beat up by the woman and then her father beats him up later. But it's very, very like theatrical and like, just stand here. I'm going to grab you, throw you down. Oh, it was very late 80s kind of 
Like they were, they, they were like, well, we have to have a martial arts sequence. So here we go. And we're going to do it. And that was the outcome. Yeah. It was not impressive. No. Yeah. Just car scenes then. Mark Frost just, just directed the car chases. Car <laughs> scenes, car chases, anything with cops. That's good. Yeah. We're yeah. good in that area. Yeah. yeah. He does that very well. Yeah. <laughs> I always think about it, if Twin Peaks had not been renewed for a second season, would they have, who would they have said was the killer? Would we have said Jacques was mm-hmm. the killer? Or, I mean, I guess it ends with Cooper saying, we think it's Leo and we're going to, we're going to catch him or something like that. But I always wonder, like, mm. would they have wrapped it up and said, oh yeah, the killer was Leo or the killer was Jacques? And I mean, I think Raptor Plastic had said that the, the blood had matched with, Jacques same blood it was a, I think it was O negative or something like that so I always wondered mm-hmm. if they hadn't renewed the show on Donahue they was it Donahue or there was talk oh, that there was yeah. two endings I don't know if there really ever was two endings that they could have edited it and changed it do you guys do you know anything about that at all uh, I seem to remember maybe we're not talking about the same thing but I seem to remember at least um, Richard Bamer thinking they had filmed scenes with him, but this was later in season two. This yeah. wasn't in. Oh yeah, this is the. Finale. I think I'm thinking of something different. You're if you're talking thinking... about like a second ending for this episode, I've never heard of that. Yeah, mm, yeah. I, I think there was talk about it. I don't. I feel like the. I feel like Mark Frost always wanted to leave things on a cliffhanger and stuff, just mm-hmm. like they do for season two. Yeah, because he knew season yeah. three, it would get people to to like write into ABC and be like, yeah. we want the show back, right? Yeah. Well, it's like with the pilot, we wonder what would happen if there was nothing more and we were just left with the pilot. Right. Well, what, what the European like, pilot? or I feel like that's <laughs> more of a possibility than being left with the at episode seven, partly because at that point they invested so much and they actually had an actual audience that mm-hmm. it was like, you know, they would have probably wanted to make a TV movie or something somewhere to get funding to like wrap it up. And plus also though, because the pilot is done in a way where you feel like this could just be open forever and we'll never know and there's no way of knowing and that's part of the sad melancholy mystery of it. But episode seven is not like that. Episode seven no. is very plotty, mm. very straight ahead. And to, to have this episode and then end it without any sort of resolution I don't think would have felt right. It's probably partly why, you know, people were so upset at the time in some cases. Yeah. The mm-hmm. Video and stuff that we've probably seen. And I mean, they have a scene where we, where James and Donna and Maddie are listening to Laura's tape. And um, we learn that James is a sad sack. A sad sack. <laughs> <laughs> the most embarrassing moment of any teenager boy's life <laughs> you're listening i mean can you like a part of me feels so bad for james in the scene because i'm like can you imagine you're listening to tapes of your dead girlfriend and just shitting all just over so you sweet. just i can only handle sweet for so i long. know and then like they'll have to pretend like they care about james like oh james <laughs> <laughs> and they're probably like yeah he's a little He's a little sad sack, but you know, it, I do. I always felt bad for James. You know, it did, especially <laughs> because his current girlfriend is right there, right? Yeah. And she, you know, you know, she's probably thinking, "Man, how am I going to get out of this one? <laughs> <laughs> I'm stuck with him now." Oh, no, true story. From beyond the grave. <laughs> Let me just say before we get to the next scene, I'm very curious what people think of the rewriting or the. Not so much the rewriting, but the re-recording of Laura's tape in this episode. I, to me, it feels totally 
I mean, it is a totally different recording, but it mm -hmm. really feels different from the way it comes off in episode one when we hear like half of it. Because mm -hmm. even the half that we've already heard is completely redone. I, it's funny. I never really thought too much about it, but I guess now that I think about it, you're absolutely right. They really aren't the same recording. So what from... are you guys, what are you saying, Joel? Like re... Jaco Jacoby and his coconut from... performance. Yeah. Oh, so I always thought it was just like, you know, it's obviously a different part of a different tape. But you're saying... Yeah, I think it's supposed to be the same tape. Oh, see, I always took it because there was multiple tapes that it was just another part of a tape. Well, it goes further than the first time we hear it, but it's, she's saying the same things. And in That's the first, true. in the episode where Jacoby's listening to it by himself, she sounds distressed and confused. And in this, she sounds like she's almost like boasting kind right. of. Right. You're right. Like, oh, yeah, really. You know, I like getting lost in those woods and all this. And it comes off very differently. And it's just interesting to me that they decided to kind of take it in a different direction. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. I was curious to hear what other people took from that or thought about it. Yeah, it's like Mark Frost is re. I prefer the earlier version. Yeah. In post return, Lindsay, looking at this, I'm like, well, it's just you know, it's another timeline. It's it's a different <laughs> Laura now, but but I don't think that's how it works yeah. at this point in time. But it could be one of those weird little handstands things that somebody could write a theory about at some point. But <laughs> true. I wasn't even think. I was thinking of the meta aspect, not even yeah. the like in world. Mm. But yeah, that's right. true. You could, you could totally make a, a Philip Jeffries uh, theory about it. Yeah, yep. I think I think it is interesting though that because the picture you get of Laura in those first couple episodes is different than the one that emerges later on, right? Like where right. she is a little more flirty, and you realize, oh, she was into prostitution or drugs, and and you know you didn't get all of that right away in the in the first one. So I feel like yeah, this re-recording it kind of makes sense because yeah, for the purposes of this episode, the Laura that we're getting is radi not radically different, but it's it's more open and nuanced than uh, the lore that we got in the first couple episodes. So um, I think, I think it makes sense in, in that respect. Totally agree. Yeah. I was going to say, I feel like television used to be kind of throwaway. It wasn't like supposed to be something that was archived or saved forever. Like, especially think of soap operas where like they just kept on making them. Right. Like the soap operas, they would recreate the same scene from the last episode. So I like this show called Dark Shadows. It was a, mm -hmm. a soap opera, gothic thing. And they would, it was from the 60s. And they would recreate the scene from the last episode. And it wouldn't be the same. No. Like, it would be like they forgot line or it just, again, like the, the approach they took was a little different. But the idea was never that they were going to save those episodes. It was just kind of like we got to throw we throw shows together every week. And it's maybe not the, quite the same now with Twin Peaks, but I still kind of think of it as they're just trying to put out shows and not thinking. Yeah. I don't know if they're always thinking, oh, Laura didn't sound like this from the last one. We, Yeah, um, in a way, nobody's going to go back. Nobody has the option to go back and compare yeah. the two. So they can change history right. as they go along, and no one's really going to notice. Yeah. yeah. I was trying to figure out when was it really popular, but I guess really Star Trek was when, I mean, when it was popular, they started collecting things. So, I mean, we have, there is some history there, but... A lot right. of times it was throwing, I mean, a lot of people just think we make an episode, we sell some commercials, and we move on, and mm -hmm. not thinking that this is something that people are going to analyze for 30 years. Yeah, because it's weird. I, I remember, like, uh, certain shows would end on a cliffhanger, and the next week the show would come back, and like you're saying, they'd recreate that 
last five minutes and they would slightly change it right. to allow your hero to escape. And you'd see him <laughs> fall off a cliff and then you come back next week and that cliff all of a sudden he takes a left turn. And you're like, what? <laughs> and and that's how it would end. They would do yeah. that all the time. And they would totally change what happened. I think it's interesting too because Frost definitely seems to be more into like other aspects of the show sometimes more than Laura, even though he, you know, probably played a huge role in creating her in the first place. But he always kind of says, gee, I was surprised that Lynch was so into her or that the audience was so into it. Like to me, that was just a way into the story. Mm. So I think I get that a little in this episode where so much circulates around Laura and she's this crucial plot point. But we're not really, I don't I don't feel like we're getting the same kind of empathetic portrayal of her in a way. It's mm. more like, and I, that to me plays out in the re-recording where it's like she's more of just sort of the sultry kind of like mm-hmm. towel almost. Mm. And it's like, okay, we're using her as a method to kind of show James's vulnerability and Jacoby and this and that. And she's this interesting figure to look at from outside. And you get that too with like, you know, and I'm I'm not saying it's like totally judgmental or whatever, because obviously when Josh is doing his thing and talking about how they were like sort of tormenting her, Cooper's obviously like disturbed by it and we're meant to be really grossed out by him and everything. But it does very much feel like an outside portrait of Laura, whereas Lynch was much more interested in interior kind mm. of getting more personally eventually. Yeah, and I feel like that plays out in this episode in really interesting ways. Yeah, uh, I think that's a really great point, Joel, because you're right in this episode and and kind of in a few other episodes, a few other places, Laura really is the she's like the way to comment on other characters. So this scene, it's really not about Laura. It's about her friends and Mm. her former boyfriend and how they react to things. It's not necessarily about her. So re-recording it doesn't seem like a big departure in that sense because we're not even meant to really hear it i think it's just a way to understand how james feels and how donna feels about james and how they relate to one another with maddie in the room right so it's interesting that laura plays that role she's so central we all agree there but it's in this instance she's kind of she's there but she's not there yeah and I feel like in some ways Maddie kind of replaces Laura. Like I feel like the right. first episodes of this of the season were really kind of like, oh, we're getting to see Laura through the tapes, and then we have a flashback yeah. of the locket, and we have like we're getting more and more, and then all of a sudden Maddie shows up, and Maddie kind of becomes that substitute for for Laura, mm-hmm. and then we fit we actually see it with her wearing a wig and right, yeah. Well, she's in Cheryl Lee is in every episode from the pilot to episode sixteen. Because first, because of those things you mentioned, and then when Maddie comes in, she's the way for Cheryl Lee to be in those episodes. True. Mm-hmm. And after that, she's not in it again until the season two finale. So right. Like, mm-hmm. Which is kind of a loss. I mean, I know she's a great actress. I, and there was rumors that like uh, David Lynch was going to m- make uh, Cheryl Lee a redhead and bring her back right. for another season. <laughs> that would have been ridiculous. I think- <laughs> Judy. Who <laughs> Judy was the redhead? Oh, there you go. Ah. Because mm-hmm. actually, too. Madeline and Judy are the characters in Vertigo who are, you know, uh, the characters. Yeah. I won't say more than that for spoilers. No, no, it's great. I love it. I know. There's a lot of uh, characters references from Vertigo there. So mm-hmm. we have Leo uh, getting ready to start a fire, and he's he's uh, he's got uh, Shelly tied up. He's like, you made me do this. I know. What a horrible guy. What a jerk. 
And we go into uh, Nadine, and uh, she's going to commit suicide. I know. It's such a sad scene. It is. She's just a nobody. I know. Aww. And she just wanted her drape runners. She was rejected. <laughs> and she rejected. wanted Ed to love her. And she was going to buy a big TV. And I know. I feel like because you learn so much about Big Ed and her past, you know, what would happen with on their honeymoon and everything, I feel like she's always trying to, like, impress him. And because I think she knows he's got eyes for uh, Norma, I think she knows... She's just trying to do something for him. And that's what's sad about the whole thing. It's like she's not trying to live life for herself. She's trying to, like, make Big Ed proud of her. That's all I, I feel like that she's living for. Yeah. You know? So it's, it is kind of very sad. A sad scene. I, I Like, when I first watched the show, I thought she really was going to die. Like, right. I thought her character was totally done. Um, but where's I, the drama in that? Then, I then know. Then Norma they and Ed could live happily ever after. That wouldn't be. Yeah, be horrible though. <laughs> like your wife could suicide. Now they're together. That's a horrible way to go. But like, you know, her becoming super strong. And they're like, well, maybe they should have killed her off. Because oh! <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You went there. I know. Wow. Well, that that storyline was ridiculous. But still, you know. In yeah. the context of this episode, it was, for me, I was very sad to see that. And I, I really thought that was it for Norma. She's a very sad character right now. Yeah. Tragic character. She's a tragic character. She'll find character. yourself 25 yeah. years from now. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It'd be fantastic. We'll all love it. <laughs> we have a scene with Hank and Josie. Oh, not, yeah. And I, you have the reindeer. Or, He's got the antlers, yeah, that one shot. That's a pretty cool show. The buck, very stylish. Yeah. The buck stops here. Yes. That's <laughs> There you go. That's it. I mean, I feel like he's really laying the gauntlet down about yeah. everything. He's He's been in prison so long. He's for somehow this mastermind. I don't know how is he a, he's like a bumbling idiot later on. He's like I don't um, know. I don't know how Hank does it. <laughs> Yeah, it's um that that whole scene, it's so I love the dialogue and I've always loved that dialogue. And before I even like clued in that this was Mark Frost written, directed, everything, that dialogue just spoke to me the way he talks about, you know, what does that do to the market value of eighteen yeah. months? And it's just it's so good. And then mm-hmm. having watched more Mark Frost, it's it stuff that he's written, I'm just like that that dialogue, he's so great at writing dialogue. The, everything else that Hank does, none of it rises to the level of this episode, which is right, which yeah. is really really interesting. I do agree. This, yeah, this is a peak I feel like for a lot of characters. This this episode and maybe a little bit the one before. I feel like Audrey's peak is in the prior one. I think this is already a little bit of a come down for her in a way because she doesn't have that mm-hmm. much to do uh, mm-hmm. versus previous, which is like you know the Audrey episode. But yeah. for a lot of other characters, I feel like. This is kind of a peak moment for them, for Hank, for uh, maybe even for Josie in some ways. But this is certainly the moment we find out what she's really all about, you know? Yeah, no, I was just going to jump in and say even Hank's later scene with Norma, where he's kind of laying it on thick. He's like, oh, shucks, I shouldn't be saying this. You know, (laughs) it's very duplicitous. And you get that from this early Josie scene. And yet it somehow works for his character, right? Like his character is this evil mastermind idiot somehow combination mm-hmm. and 
uh, the the actor, I think I can never remember his name. Chris now. Mulkey. Chris Mulkey. Thank you, Lindsay. Uh, he he doesn't get enough credit for tying in these multiple kind of personalities that this character winds up presenting on screen so well because mm. you, you kind of feel like yeah he's he's playing norma and then he's trying to play josie but he's it's playing a dangerous game and he's kind of rising to the level of the various characters that he's interacting with um mm. and even when he when he goes and puts the hit out on leo for ben horn he's very straightforward and like yeah i'll get the guy don't worry you know like it's it's very much uh kind of like a, a good a good all-round character. This character can do everything <laughs> that the plot requires and still feel believable. Yeah, and uh, that's that's unique, and he does a really good job of it. Josie always disappoints me. Her best scene for me is she's she's with Ben Horn in his office, and she says, "I'll bury you." And he says they they kind of one up each other and yeah. says, "Oh, I've got all this information about you." You and I thought she was like tough and she could hold her own, and she, I feel like she never does that as well. For the rest of the series, I like I with the scene with Hank. I'm like, why she seems like she's shy or uncomfortable, and I I wish yeah. she would just rise up and be mm. like, listen, we made a. I mean, she kind of does. She, she said, gets, we made a deal, and this is our deal, and she gets beaten down by everybody around her. I guess, though, but she's. I think know? I want to believe she's tougher than that. I really do want to believe that she could take. Well, a, she has like in season two. I mean. She has yeah. like her cousin, which is basically Jonathan. The, the Jonathan. Uh, yeah, but I'm we saying like go into Jonathan. No. She has like this mafia that's behind her. He's like he's going like after. Her yes, stuff. I know. So she's oh, beaten man, down. I, where are we going? I'm just saying, jo- Josie's character can't rise to the top because I feel like they beat her down so much. And I agree with you, Ben. I, I agree that it would have been great to see her character break away and become a strong character. But they don't give her that opportunity. I mean, she shot Cooper, so she's she's a yeah, she, that's she, true. she's I a know. bad. She can be a badass. It just we don't see it yeah, enough. Yeah. It's funny too that Frost wrote this, and she does come off as very sort of weak and uncertain. And then in Secret History, he, to my mind, completely rewrites the character to make her this just like mastermind that's been on top of everything like her whole life until she finally like i think she like kills her father or something and she's like heiress to this gang like i thought that was too much for me that Mm. that that uh turn so it's interesting that he came up with that in 2015 but at the time when he was writing her i don't feel like in the episodes where he writes her he ever really pushes her in that direction. No, I don't think so. Yeah. No, it's almost the opposite. Like she, this is the point when like the sands that are shifting beneath her feet and she's trying to like find her balance. And then in that act of desperation shoots Cooper Mm. and we don't know it at the time, but when you find out later rewatching the scene, you're like, yeah, okay. I can see how she thinks she has things figured out. She thinks she knows where things are going. And all of a sudden She's meeting all this resistance. Well, I got to do something. And there's a kind of resilience and a kind of resourcefulness there, but it's not the kind of powerful, you know, power move that you expect from what, how we've come to know her, I guess, in, in previous interactions. Right. Yeah. Totally agree. So the next scene we have is Lucy uh, telling Andy that she's pregnant. Also a Hill Street Blues scene to me. Oh. The humor that they do on there sometimes. And the relationship stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, like, this felt like it, it was a locker, one of the locker room scenes from the Hill Street Blues episode. Yeah. It was like, this, these are the kinds yeah, of things totally. that they talk about when they've, you know, come off their shift or they're going on shift or whatever. 
Very much so. Yeah, it's funny because they're right. They're talking about the whole uh, Andy shot uh, Jacques, <laughs> and then you have Lucy take come in the front of the screen and basically watering the plants and it becomes it's not about the shooting anymore it's about this love mm-hmm, relationship mm-hmm. it's funny that like I always think that Andy and Lucy are great together and they're so sweet together but I, you forget how much they're apart yeah. for like they're part most of yes. most of the series I mean then Dick will come part of this and you have so <laughs> it isn't until the end I don't know it's, it's funny because in my head oh they're always together it's always Lucy and Andy but they were apart most of the time of the series. He was trying to win her affection. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or run away. I don't know. Or yeah, something. <laughs> I don't know. So this is technically the first appearance of Wally Brando. I just want to point that there out. There you go. Right? Oh, yeah. I like that. Wow. <laughs> you had to say that. <laughs> and I still think it's Dick's kid. I don't think it's Andy's kid. Yeah, I'm with you there. Yeah, yeah. I think most... his mannerism feels more right. like Richard there. Yeah, and when we when yeah. we talk to him, he even thinks his that is his kid. Yes, yeah, I think so. You're <laughs> right. Love it. Uh, Ian, Ian Buchanan. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. He said he said the wardrobe. He got a style <laughs> like Dick. <laughs> uh, so uh, Jacques gets interviewed by Cooper and Harry. I mean, it really just it, it it kind of tells us more about what happened that last night and stuff. And it basically mm-hmm. says, you know, he got uh, a whiskey bottle hit over the head, and then Leo and the girls were gone and stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess it kind of just that's where I think we're I guess we're just led to believe it has to be Leo because they're that, the only ones to the left. I mean, they're the yeah. <laughs> Leo took them, I guess. Yeah. Especially when Cooper is like. He's too stupid to lie. So any other show would have would have maybe left the door open for a character like this to be duplicitous and and make up a story like this. But Cooper just comes right out and says it like he's he's not lying because he's too dumb. <laughs> so there's no way that that it's kind of a, a reverse cliffhanger type thing yeah. because you're taking people off the list of potential suspects. They do it with Jacoby too. Jacoby is knocked off the list of suspects after the tape scene a few scenes prior, right? right? So Yeah, and that always makes me question, Lindsay, like how long could they have kept this up? Like who's left in town that we've met? And then with them introducing new people in the second season, it's like, oh now we've got all new suspects. But yeah. I don't yeah. It would have got convoluted. They yes. kept adding people. Right. Yeah, yeah. It would have been like that lost episode, and they gave us new people, and they didn't like them. But the fans supposedly <laughs> wanted it. No, and they was did. like, what's happening with the background people? Oh, we still want their backstory, <laughs> and then we'll kill them off. We're, we're, we're <laughs> practicing for our lost podcast that we're gonna do in, in twenty years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're gonna be like the Bix, and we're gonna just call it Lost Unwrapped. So we'll keep the unwrapped. Uh, <laughs> right, right, right. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so we have a scene at the double R with Hank and Norma. I still can't believe Norma would even want anything to do with this guy. It's still, they have no chemistry. No. I never see them as a couple. I just see them as business partners in a way. And right. I, yeah, I don't, it's like not believable to me that they were together. And if so, why? What did she, they benefit from each other? I mean, what did she get from him? Because she, she had attention. He seemed like he... he but she's always he had... Romeo, like she, he could be somebody that, like, oh... Like, I get the Nadine and Big Ed and uh, Norma thing, but the Hank thing, I don't get at all. Like, they don't have... 
They don't have kids. Maybe it's like the Shelly Johnson thing. They, should, they like bad Man, boys. Yeah, I think that's got to like be it. Boys. You're right. I think that's it. That's it. He always just is question. He's he's good at like it's like a weird form of gaslighting where he's not he's actually being on the surface super nice to her, but doing it in a way that he can tell makes her question herself. Right. Mm. Like it's a very like sophisticated form of manipulation. Yeah. Uh, his character is really interesting to me because I think for the most part, Twin Peaks characters are kind of they find like a trait or a thing and they kind of you know, maximize it. And that's often a lot of fun. But Hank is one of the few characters who really has that like immense uh, subtlety and nuance to how he actually behaves. Because he's like this, this extremely passive aggressive guy in a way that you can almost see people kind of falling for it, but kind of also knowing eh, this. I mean, I, I don't know, I, I guess he's okay. I mean, but but like in, you know, having that nagging feeling that something's not right. Like it's just right. I just love how they how they kind of modulate that. That's yeah. a good point, yeah. Yeah. He can be charming, but there is that slight you're right, right there's that slight thing about him that makes you uneasy. But he always gets in trouble too. He's always That's what doing I'm saying. things that he shouldn't be doing. Right. Yeah. He's a troublemaker. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have a scene where, where uh, Big Ed comes home and Nadine is on the floor and he's got to call 911. And it makes me think, you know, he left her to go to the casino and he says, don't you give up! Because she's like talking about being rejected. I know. And, like, she, he, he already knew she was in a fragile state, but he still goes off and does his uh, bookhouse <laughs> boy stuff. <or> <laughs> oh, Big Ed. Oh, Big Ed. Yeah. Poor Nadine. Poor Nadine. I know, poor Nadine. You know, maybe she just... It's funny, I guess she, she did get... I was going to say, only Jacoby was there. And jo, Jacoby actually does show up when she's a, a high school girl. You know, going back, looking at season three, Jacoby was always there for her. Jacoby helped her. Right, like, but mm-hmm. he helped her in season two with... Yes, with, 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 that's as what I'm saying. I, know, I think... So, like, maybe it was, it was there all along. Yeah. I just wanted to say this had my favorite comedy moment unintentional i think but every time uh ed slaps nadine i for some reason it just makes me burst out. <laughs> <laughs> lindsay, lindsay, lindsay do we a, have a problem here lindsay <laughs> un, unintentional comedy slapping nadine oh man oh i can't God. help it i just it cracks me up every time <laughs> Literally, we had to pause the episode so that he could stop laughing. Ridiculous. He needs like a, a, a 10 second back so he can watch it again. Oh, my like God. <laughs> That's too oh. funny. Yeah, that's awful. <laughs> what are you guys laughing at? We're watching Nadine getting slapped over and over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> And we are at the uh, the sheriff's station, and Leland comes by and says, "You caught the killer." Oh yeah, right. It's like, why would you say that? Don't even say anything, because he's gonna go and. Uh... I know. Why would you just announce that out right. loud? Like, come on, subtleties, people. <laughs> um, I think I'll do the other unseen Twin Peaks, where we have we have Jerry and Heba. Is it, is it Heba? Is that her name? Mm-hmm. Unseen Scene 2. I'm Shape of the Dark Lord as Jerry Horn. Interior, casino room, night. Jerry is explaining to a tearful Heba something about a cocktail waitress. Heba, baby, I swear to you, she doesn't mean a thing to me. Oh, oh, Jerry. Then how does she know the name of your boat? 
She's a yachting enthusiast. She's a nut for water sports. Do we want to talk about that? I mean, it's a very, it's only, it's only a few lines. I think they're pretty funny lines, though. It's very revealing of the the dynamic between, I mean, nobody should be surprised that Jerry took some other showgirl onto his boat. But the excuse he gives about her being a yachting enthusiast who's in no water sports is just killer. That that made me laugh so hard. It's such a Jerry Horn thing to say. I love it. Oh, and that's how their relationship ends. I mean, we never yeah. see her again. Yeah. And, uh... Yeah, no, and it's interesting because, like, I think uh, Mark Frost, you can kind of his fingerprints are on Jerry Horn a little bit more than you might think because David Lynch has this kind of quirky sense of humor. But I think I think uh, Mark Frost is all over this character, and the fact that he likes to make the double entendres and stuff like right. that is yes. kind of a it's it's what Mark Frost knows you can kind of get away with mm. on television. Um, <laughs> you know, sure. in film, it might be a little, you know. David Lynch's blacker humor might come out a little bit more, but uh, if you need a goofy character, Mark Frost has got him in spades. <laughs> That's very true. Uh, yeah. I just gonna go to uh, Bobby going to check on Shelly at at the Johnson house, and Leo is there waiting. Yeah, just hiding behind the door and waiting for him, like he knows he's coming. It's so menacing. He is just such a Leo is is. Up until the reveal or the the inclusion of Bob, Leo is the scariest character on Twin Peaks as far as I'm concerned. He's yeah. just so menacing. Yeah, he's just a bad seed for yeah. what reason? He just he's just an ass. <laughs> yeah. Sign of invitation to love, right? Right. This scene. And it, oh yeah. Oh yeah, right. The invitation yes, to love. Invitation yeah. to love. The, is this the last time we get invitation to love? I think so. I think it is. The last time we see it, and then we hear it once. Ah, uh, yes. Right. Mm. I actually love that it, it like it echoes the show, or there's a parallel. Like you have a gunshot happening on invitation to love, mm-hmm. and then you have Hank shooting Leo. And I, I don't know. I think it's fun. It's cool. I know Lynch thought it was too silly. But it's very. I. It's. It fits somehow. I like the idea of. Leo's last moments of consciousness before he passes out from loss of blood or whatever are watching this scene play out. That always strikes me as as kind of poetic in a yes. way, in yeah. a goofy way, but but poetic nonetheless. Right. In both cases, the villain has got what they deserve or they've been stopped. Yeah. In right. The... Yeah, exactly. Cool. Then we have Shelly and Kathleen and, and Shelly Johnson at the mill. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like this scene just because of the thing. It's like, who are you? It's like, it's like this is such a small town. You don't know Shelly Johnson? You've never gone to the double diner? diner? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and I still don't believe that it's, is it 15,000 it's supposed to be? I don't believe that. I believe that town is like a thousand. Well, didn't they say they had to make it bigger because yes. the network thought? Yes. Yeah. I still think it's a small town. Me too. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> But it's got those little signs here and there. Yeah. Occasionally. Like that department store. And not just the inside, but the out the like exterior. Like you look at that and you're like, really? That's in like a small little town that looks like shot from like that looks like a b-roll shot from seinfeld or something that's true <laughs> right that's true right they do have some yeah. like even the bank and there's a couple of things right where it seems way yeah. too it doesn't feel like it's it feels like it's part of a city or something mm. so then we have jacques getting murdered taped up and pillow over his his 
face. And we kind of already talked about that with Leland. It's still very interesting, though, that it's, I mean, that's kind of a shocking twist. If you if you think back to the first time you see that, to realize that Leland would do that, um, it feels appropriate in a way because he's such a, he's grieving so deeply that mm. it makes sense. Right. But it is still such a shocking moment, I think. Mm. It's hard to really remember that because we've watched the scene so many times but if you remember the first time you watched it that that must have taken our breath away you know that yeah. oh my god Leland killed a guy yeah. and even maybe feel like oh it's justifiably so in the sense that yeah. like this is a bad guy just like we just saw leo we thought good he, the bad guy's getting what he deserves right. jock yeah. deserves this right and it's only through re-watching after knowing after seeing the reveal of who the killer was and then re-watching this and you have the fire alarm uh, is it stop? It stops. And all of a sudden, it seems like Leland is snapped out of it, which mm -hmm. it makes me think, is that Bob? Is that Bob leaving him and Leland's coming back and like, oh, what's going on? And I got to get out of here. Something like right. that. I kind of, it seems like almost like a switch. I love it. Yeah, yeah. And the whole audio cue for that too, like with the alarm disappearing and then it comes back and it's like, is Leland screaming almost? Like there's a really interesting uh, yeah. audio setup there too that's, yeah, it yeah. makes that, that whole scene very watchable considering like, you don't know what's going on and you don't know who's doing it. And then the reveal is just like, oh, oh my God. Totally, yeah, th totally. definitely. Um, and it, it it makes us feel like he's doing the right thing, like you said, Ben. And because and Lindsay, because we just saw that scene prior to this of the bad guy getting it. So mm. you're like an eye for an eye. Yeah, everybody's getting what they deserve. deserve. But then, and then, but yeah, then you go, oh my God, he, he just killed, killed someone. Right. How? And then they're so lenient on him a little bit. They're like, yeah, you know. And they still had no hard evidence that he killed the killer. They had oh, no yeah. hard evidence. Yeah. So he was still a killer. But they were all like, well, you know. <laughs> you killed the drug dealer. Like, in season two, we're saying the judge is like, yeah. it's like, you know, we, we, we hope we'll get through this and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wink, wink. You'll be fine. Yeah, wow. this is great. I, I love how they play that out in season two. Like, they just get you like, oh, this folksy judge. He's And he's like horrible. Like, yeah. like <laughs> he like, blows into this town, gives like a terrible verdict. And like, oh. And then the guy murders someone like two days later. It's like, yeah. And he gets to go free, right? He gets to go out on bail. And yeah, he's just kind of like, yeah, oh, come back later. He, he understands this town. And meanwhile, the lawyer who comes in, who's totally out of place and gets like his wallet stolen or whatever. Oh. <laughs> and it's like stumbling through the trial and like, oh, well, but, but, but everything he says is like correct. Oh, kind of oh. an interesting little subversion there. That's that funny. Like, yeah. So really, it was the judge who killed Maddie. <laughs> we didn't. He could have saved. You could have stopped it. You could have stopped it. You could have stopped it. Oh man. I'll be there at the funeral to shout at everyone again. Yeah. <laughs> we all killed her. We all killed. Yeah. I mean, seriously, yeah. you guys did this time. Oh. <laughs> Cooper was in the wrong place. The giant. So, so Brian has been saying this to me recently. I don't think we're getting off the track, but I don't think Cooper was in the right, wrong place. He, the log lady says the owls are in the roadhouse. He goes to the roadhouse. You feel like he does not, should not be in the roadhouse. No, because the giant's saying it's happening again. But he, that's where he was meant to be. That's where he was. Well, I guess. I, I don't, don't know. know. <laughs> what do you, 
can we really not helping anybody that he's there? Yeah, he's he's watching the log while you eat peanuts. I mean, what <laughs> the frick? <laughs> it is doing nothing. Right. He's well, having, he's observing people, all around. Yeah. Yeah. People who theorize that the giant was actually bad, which I feel like I don't think you could pull that off anymore after season three, but right. that was like a theory that some people had, and it was like, oh, he's misleading Cooper. Because mm. otherwise he would be like, oh, I'm going to go to the Palmer's house to question Leland since, or, or about, you know, because we just arrested Ben and now we have our suspect. Mm. And, like that. and that would have intercepted, you know, but I guess later episode. <laughs> yeah, I guess super, you know, it, it was a bad connection with the giant. That's all. Oh, <laughs> Interference. It is happening. Mm-hmm. We are now at, back at the One-Eyed Jacks and Audrey is getting made up. By the Leslie scene. Link Linka Gladder, Lincoln the director, Gladder. Yep. one of the directors and stuff, as a seamstress, and uh, then uh, Ben Horn walks in. Oh boy! What, what dreams are made of? Yeah, he's ready to check out the new girl. <laughs> oh, so awkward. So, fun fact: um, this scene was the first scene, my reintroduction to Twin Peaks as an adult. This was the very first scene I watched. My parents were watching it. And I cannot describe ad- adequately enough how disturbing it is to watch this scene with your father. Oh, yeah. It's so awkward. And, yes. and it still made me like, okay, I want to watch this, but I'm going to borrow the discs and I will take them home with me and I will watch them <laughs> on myself because I can't sit here and watch this show with you oh, if this is going to happen. Right. But this was the very well, the first scene that I watched as a 25-year-old. Especially with the uh, the, ki- the, re- the the reveal yeah. of the killer, I don't oh, think yeah. we want to see Leland and Maddie and uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like I I don't. I think if I had fire- kids, I'd be like here you go, you can borrow it, right. enjoy it. We'll talk about it later. Firewalk with me. Yeah, the, yeah, the whole yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah no thanks. <laughs> and then we have a uh, Cooper coming back, going back to his uh, his room in the Great Northern. And uh, it seems like, he, yeah, like I said, he seems like he's going to wrap things up. They're going to catch Leo, and uh, mm. that's it. The shot heard across America. It's like, who shot JR? It's kind of yeah. like that. Yeah, totally. I, and yeah. I think I'm sure it was, uh, it was a nod to that. Right. Probably. It wasn't even like the, uh, um, at the time, the president of Russia asking, like, uh, Bush, who killed Laura Palmer. I mean, yes. that's how big. It was huge. How big Everybody that got? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and I think people were not happy that it ended like this. But I mean, that's what cliffhangers. That's what right. season finales are supposed to be for. Yeah. In the original script, I think they 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 purposely held off on the last page so they didn't know that he got shot. Like I think it was it wasn't there. Oh wow. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So that's cool. This is a episode seven. I'd love to like go. Uh, yeah. Is there anything else? I usually I ask. Does this episode change at all now that we've seen season three? I don't know if I mean we talked a little bit about season three a tiny bit, but I don't know if we relook at this any differently now, yeah. unless we talk about uh, uh, Laura's tape has changed now that uh, we live in these <laughs> parallel worlds and stuff. I don't know, or these uh, other dimension. Or I don't know. Laura didn't die. Oh, well, I but I guess I guess there's the whole thing with um, Leland's culpability, knowing that he, but he hadn't left the diary pages yet in the police station, right? Right. I th- mm-hmm. I feel like that would have happened. I feel yeah. like that could have happened with time he did it. Yeah. I don't. Know. I don't. I don't know. I never really was able to square that circle, so I'm you know not what? sure. 
that when he bring when he comes to the the police station with uh with the picture of Bob and says I know who this was and oh right. and he holds it under his nose. Yeah, <laughs> Brian likes to mention that too. That uh, yeah. that he had it. Basically, he's showing under his it. nose. Right. The killer is under your nose. Look at, Look at me, wink, wink. <laughs> Bob does do that a bunch of times. He, yes. he basically, I mean. Episode 15 with the golf clubs and Leland's going golfing and he shows Cooper. He's like, oh, you want to look at my clubs? And there's a bag with a dead body. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's very, he gets very cocky to the point of like, hey, look, you're not going to get me. I'm right here. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like a kamikaze mission at that point. He doesn't even care. Like, it's just Leland will pay the price for it. Bob can go Mm. take off wherever. It's true. But so he's just playing with them at that point, right? Yeah, definitely. He's just a meat bag. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Don't they kind of suggest maybe that he had the pages on him when they arrested him for Jacques' death? I don't know why. He must have just carried them around with him or something. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Weird memento or something, you know? What if he was going to plant them for Ben Horn? Because he was trying to plant the Ben Horn thing. Any of those times that he was in the The office. In the, yeah. Share station. I mean, he's he, right. You're right. He's been there a few times now. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense. The only the only reason to hide them would be if thought they were going to search him there. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm. Because otherwise, why would you go to the sheriff station and hide evidence of your killing <laughs> in right. the yeah. sheriff station bathroom when you could like throw it in the woods or something like a yeah. You know. It's so it must have been something he kept and held on to and then realized. Oh no! Like I'm gonna I, I, if if I keep these with me right now, I'm gonna say I have to go to the bathroom and get rid of them. Yeah, yeah, the idea. And of course, Firewalk with me, he has the the diary pages with him, and he shows them to Lori at the train station. Yeah, mm-hmm. is what he's saying is that different? For, those are the ones that they found by the train car out there. Yeah. Oh, I believe. Okay. Yeah. So well, maybe I, not, I don't know. So. Oh, you're right because the, would these be from... them and he kept that that one for some reason? Yeah, it is. It's very confusing. Also, because in the film, Harold gets the diary way before she would have written that, True. so she would have had to have like a third diary. Oh man, she knocked at the door. It's like I know I gave you the diary, but I have one more entry. To it comes <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a ledger all over again. Yes. How many ledgers? <laughs> do you need? Oh, man. Do we burn this diary or do we? Uh, yeah, or we keep this one. All right. Oh man. <laughs> So yeah, this is the Mark Frost episode. This is his one that he directed. Do we have anything more to say about Mark Frost in in this episode? I think this is just one of those amazing episodes. It's one of my favorite episodes of the season of the series, mm. hands down. Um, it's easy to watch. It's uh, there's something for everyone. I think there's a little bit of love story. There's a little bit of action. There's the mystery, the intrigue. There's murder. Um, there's just, it, it's, it's a really well written, well crafted episode. So kudos to Mark Frost. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's too bad. He didn't do more. I, I think know. he could have directed yeah. more episodes, but it's kind of surprising though, that there isn't the one thing there isn't is, um, any supernatural stuff. Yeah. True. And we know from his later writing and even some of the sort of discovery of what he himself brought to Twin Peaks, that he loves that stuff. Yeah. So it's interesting to me that for whatever reason, season two, like it has a few elements of that in there, but it just trends away from it towards something else, something they're totally focused on the criminal world. It's like somehow I, I, it seems like he felt like because this episode was all about 
kind of tightening up the plot screws and getting us to that, the you know, a cliffhanger scenario, that there wasn't room for that type of stuff because it was a little more open, maybe? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I I'm just that. intrigued by that. And I feel like until the giant came into it, you guys have talked about this. There was he was still kind of passing off the dream as like a tool, like a psychic tool to help him solve mm-hmm. a mystery. Yeah, you know, until episode eight, we don't really get the sense that there's like a supernatural spirit world element uh, here, other than the dream, which is quickly sort of turned into something else. Right. Mm-hmm. I will just add though, there's the whole you know Sarah having visions and. <laughs> Cooper's saying, I didn't want to go because I'm a strong strong sender. And so there is, there's elements there and there is stuff in the script. I want to say it might be the episode. It's like between humans. You know what I mean? That's true. That's a good point. Coming into it. Right. Other than whatever Bob is and kind of, they leave that open. Mm Mm-hmm. So the question is why why was that introduced in season season two? Season two definitely opened it all up to be supernatural. I mean, they have more room to explore it. I yeah, think. maybe I think you're right. I mean, they did have 22 episodes. It's like we got to keep that plot engine going, and right. so they're kind of bound to all this real world down to earth stuff, especially by this episode. Yeah, very true. Well, I'd love to hear about the Bix, what you guys have been up to. You've got, you, you know, is it, can I still call it a new podcast? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think that's fair to say. We've uh, we've got about 13 episodes under our belt as the, the new wow. Shakespeare focus. So, um, yeah, it's it's been going well. It's it's definitely a different, <laughs> it's a different world than Twin Peaks, uh, especially, you know, we have to actually read plays and stuff. Wow. I mean, that's really hard for us because we're more visual people, but uh, you know, it's it's fun and it's it's different and it's something we enjoy talking about, which is kind of the whole reason we do this. Yeah, um, yeah. it's the reason we started this one because we love talking about Twin Peaks and we wanted to share it. So now we moved on to a different topic, and yeah, it's been great. And if if so, if there's somebody out there who hasn't listened to your podcast, can you can you tell us like what is a typical episode like? In the new format, we kind of we take turns kind of on explaining what we're talking about and we get through our analysis and then the whole bickering part we've we've tried to focus a little bit more on that i think that was one of the complaints from our listeners in the previous episodes is that we didn't bicker enough and as a married couple it's it's something we do quite naturally so <laughs> to actually have a section of our podcast we call it marriage counseling we kind of go at it for 10 minutes about an issue that we want to talk about and that it's fun to be able to to do that in a you know, this context of Shakespeare and and talking about an issue from the play or an issue from history or whatever, which sounds dry and boring, but we hope we make it a little bit more interesting. But that's kind of the angle we take when we when we head into things. Cool. That's right. I think it's fun. I'm not a huge Shakespeare person, really, but I enjoy your your podcast. Well, thank you very much. And Joel, it's been four years in the making, but we actually finally met you in person. At Worcester, Massachusetts. Yes, that was fun. What were we doing? Well, we we went to The Rock in Shock to meet some uh, Twin Peaks people and Joel. Yeah. It's like basically a con. It's metal and uh, and horror. Horror. Yeah. And uh, we saw some weird vendors there that didn't make any sense, like pet supplies or whatever yeah, that was funny. <laughs> i don't know what that was about it was weird um but it was a great time we met joel finally and um we got to meet 
Eric Del Rey, Sherwin Fenn was there, Ray Wise was there. Yes. No, Derek Mears. Derek Mears, and that, tell about that. So we were there, and I think Joel, you, correct me if I'm wrong, I think we we're. he goes, oh, I do the typical arm wrestling pose, and I don't know if Joel or, said something in, uh, I, I think one of us said, how about all three? And he goes, oh, I've never done three, yes. <laughs> so the three of us arm wrestled him, and the picture. Simultaneously. Yeah, and the picture came out fantastic. Oh, it's a great picture. Yeah, so good. That's awesome. And he was so nice. If you're a Twin Peaks fan and he's at a um, one of these cons, go talk to him. He came up to us without our solicitation, without us even asking him a word. He saw the T-shirts, and he just gave you everything he experienced on that set. I mean, it was a great story. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like he came over to us, shook our hands, and just went into it. Was there cool. was no like prodding. He was so friendly, so nice. Yeah. He didn't charge for the photo. Right. It was only I bought. I got an autograph, which he charged. But the pictures were free. But if you want to know about Twin Peaks, about his time on set. Coolest guy. Nice oh my guy. God, he'll just give it to you. He just tell you everything. Right. Some and... people are like a little more uh, like they're standoffish, but he was very friendly. Oh my God, beyond friendly. Yeah, yeah. I've never met anybody that friendly uh, <laughs> at a con. Like he was just so happy that you were there. He right. was so happy to be there. Yeah. Granted, it was Friday night, the first day of a three-day event, so his Sunday his been, energy right? level was so high. Been in a lot of genre stuff because oh, it was yeah. like a horror convention, and he had like pictures. I don't think he even had Twin Peaks on his banner, right? No. He had a picture from it, but it was like from Friday. I don't remember what they were, but it was like sci-fi stuff and heart. Like he does a because he's a big guy. He does a lot of like uh, makeup work. Like he's right. been in costume or makeup and all of these as all of these like monsters or creatures or whatever. So and, it was kind of funny. Like he, he had multiple things to be there for. Right. And, you know, we recognize him from Twin Peaks, but one of the most popular shows that a lot of people were upset it got canceled, he was Swamp Thing on Swamp Thing. It got the canceled. Series, the new series. The new series. Right. And it got canceled and people were really upset, but he plays the Swamp Thing. That's cool. But then we got a photo in the Red Room with Sherilyn Fenn, Ray mm -hmm. Wise, and uh, Eric Del Rey. Yes. And that was cool. Oh, wait, so all three of us were in there. It's It was a little pricey photo, but it was kind of cool that we all got to have our photos taken together with three people. I know. We were, we were directed by Ray Wise. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Ray Wise, boy, he had us all like, sit here, you do this, you uh -huh, do that. And we uh -huh. were like, yeah, it worked, though. It was quick. Oh, my God. Yeah. I was charmed by Ray Wise. He was so cool and, like, awesome. He's a really nice guy. I He's know. such a nice guy. Ben and myself, we, we talked to Eric Del Rey on the phone the week before, and we actually had to meet him in person. And he is super nice and yeah. very forthcoming. Very it, friendly. Yeah, very friendly. And, th you know, this is the first or second year he's on the the con market. Like, he's stayed away from all this for so long, and now he's out and about. And he is really taken back by people coming to see him because he's like, I don't get it. <laughs> but he loves talking to the people, yeah. and he's a very 
welcoming person and he's you can tell he this is a different world for him right. and he's still taken back by it yeah like he feels weird about it all right but he likes talking 25 years ago he he was told that oh he could go to these type of things like that and he was like no nah, no that's not for me and now yeah. he's like seems to be enjoying it now but yeah right right so that was our time. That was kind of cool. And then we went to a diner and hung out with Joel for a little bit. Wait, Joel, can you tell everybody about the diner, how lynching it was? <laughs> uh, I mean, we had a very nice uh, older waiter, so that, but he was much faster than the one on the show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, what, 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 we all had breakfast. Oh, no, we had pies there. That's right. We all had pie. I had chocolate cake because for some reason they were out of pies, so I got – but it ended up working out because you guys got, you know, kind of small pie pieces and my chocolate cake was like gigantic. It was massive. <laughs> so this diner was so small. It's like an old uh, station diner, uh, an old converted car uh, train yeah. trolley into a diner. It had like four or, five, four or five booths and a bar and a very small walkway. So this diner was so small that the cook was also the guy working behind the diner bar, and you had one guy taking orders. So it's so small and comical. This is why it's Lynchian. He, the, the waiter would come over. We would ask him, what do you have for pies? So he would turn around and yell at the cook. The cook would come out, what do we have for pies? The guy would say, all the pies, we could hear him. He was in earshot. He was right there. <laughs> then like, he, would, he would turn around and then repeat it to us. I heard it. And he did this for everything. Yes. And then when the food was up, the cook would go make the food, put it on the bar and say to the patron that was sitting there, could you pass that to the table behind you, please? <laughs> so like... Our food was just passed to us by people sitting at the bar. <laughs> Orders were just repeated, even though we all heard it. It was very comical and yeah. very, it felt like you're in Firewalk with me. Uh, you were in the, um, right, Haps? the other town there. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I almost want to say for a Twin Peaks fan, that's a feature, not a bug. That's right. <laughs> right, it's right. So true. Oh, my God. It's a good time. It was a great time. Are you? Are you talking about that president that got impeached? <laughs> <laughs> I know shit from Shanola. <laughs> and then the, five minutes later, you'll ask again the same thing, right? Right, uh, right. Oh, man. <laughs> man, this has been fun. I can't. This is so cool to get you guys all together yeah. and uh, to do this and. Uh, Good time. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting yeah. us on. This was a, this was a blast. We were looking forward to it for like two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> this is amazing. So before we end the show, we'll go around real quick. You guys can give your information how people can find you. So we are on Twitter at the Bixpod, um, on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Bixpod. And you can go to the Bixpod.com, which is our new hosting website. And yeah, yeah, you can find our podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, all everywhere the you get spots, your yeah. regular podcasts. Just search Bix, right? The yeah. Bix. Mm -hmm. You got it. You can follow me at Lost in the Movies on Twitter. My website's lostinthemovies.com. And uh, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash lost in the movies, where this month's podcast is going to be talking about Twin Peaks' relationship to the, uh, according to Twin Peaks Unwrapped, greatest Lynch film of all time, which is, <laughs> as we all know. That, that'll be fun to do. Oh, wow. <laughs> I can't wait. This is so cool. And 
If you want a double dose of Joel, he's going to be on when we do season two madness. Ooh. I know. I wonder what what will happen in that. I Who, what, what, what will be the best episode of season two? You'll have to tune in yeah, to I, find I, out. I think it's going to have little Nikki in it. <laughs> I've got two words for you. Masked ball. Ma- yes. yes. Uh, you know, that could really take the, go all, all the way. way. Place your money on that one, people. Before we go, you can send us an email at TwinPeaksUnwrapped at gmail.com. Follow us on the old Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us that five-star review. We're on Google Play. We're on Stitcher. And a big thank you goes out to the Unseen Players. Francine, the Lucid Dream. Seedy Edie. And Schaefer, the Dark Lord. Thank you so much for doing today's two scenes. And we will be back next week with our annual community feedback podcast.